This episode is brought to you by Whitney Cummings and her brilliant comedy quote. Comedy is just a deep obsession with injustice. What do you think is not fair in the world? Okay, take that and write about it. Boom! Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, my people. Welcome to the Stephen Dyer Podcast, where I welcome people with remarkable stories for amazingly vulnerable conversations. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to Season 2, Episode 53. What? <laughs> the first 50 episodes were amazing. I learned a lot. You learned a lot. We had outstanding guests. And now, we want your feedback. Who do you think should be on the podcast? How should we improve the podcast? Should we include more vulnerability, more rapid-fire questions, more comedy, more Spanish-speaking episodes, more English episodes, more athletes, more coaches, more CEOs? We want your feedback. Like my friend Michelle Falcon always says, we are desperate for your feedback. So send us a DM to me at Stefan Dyer on Instagram or email us to the Stephen Dyer podcast at gmail.com and we'll incorporate your feedback into every episode. Here's to another 50 episode, damas y caballeros. Talking about this episode, oh my God, this episode with Bernardo Urbina was hot fire. My childhood friend and this, like Bernardo Urbina is my childhood friend. This episode was just an excellent reminder that you can do good in the most negative of circumstances. Also, that you can milk a joke for over an hour. <laughs> I think I think I milked that Alibaba joke more than I should have, but hey, you'll be the judge. Maybe you'll laugh every single time I do <laughs> every single time I do. You'll see what I'm talking about. But who is Bernardo Urbina, you may be thinking? Well, Originally from Costa Rica, Bernardo Urbina is an award-winning furniture designer who upcycles and transforms overlooked material into carefully designed high-end furniture. Bernardo studied industrial design at the Pratt Institute in New York City and continued his career and studies in New York, Milan, and later in the Philippines, considered by many to be the mecca for furniture productions. In the Philippines, he worked as a senior designer for prestigious Filipino designer Vito Selma. Fun fact, interesting fact, in fact, extraordinary fact. Bernardo was in the Philippines during Typhoon Haiyan, which destroyed several parts of the country. In the midst of such a disaster, Bernardo, in 2015, by the way, developed Tacloban Prevails, a furniture line that partners with victims of the Typhoon Haiyan, to give their scrap wood new life. That was probably my favorite part of the episode. You have, you have, it's like beautiful what Bernardo did in the Philippines. In addition to his studies and his experience in the Philippines, we also talk about his learnings as an entrepreneur, Tisu Farm, one of his ventures with his fiance Aurelia, Costa Rica Mill, that made me laugh a lot, <laughs> but it's brilliant. And my favorite, Santos Schooley. The incredible bus turned Airbnb in the middle of nowhere that has become an extraordinary tourist attraction in Costa Rica. 
Bernardo currently resides in Saolito, Costa Rica. Where is that? That is Guana Saolito's in, in Guanacaste, in Costa Rica, where he continues to explore material treatment methods of wood, metal, and rope that drives him to evolve and create progressively. You know what? I just love Bernardo's spirit, entrepreneurial spirit. The guy and his fiance Aurelia are always like quietly up to something and then to another thing and then to another thing. <laughs> and what I love the most is that everything they do, be it at Tisu Farm, Costa Rica Mill, Bernardo Urbina Design, any, uh, Santos Cooley, the bus, it's always a, a reflection of who they are. They are super authentic and they always mean well. If you like this episode, which you will, share it, share it anywhere, everywhere, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Twitter, Grinder, WhatsApp, High Five, ICQ, Casa, anywhere. Give us a review, five stars, we love it. Screenshot it on your Instagram stories and tag us at Stefan Dyer and at Bernardo underscore Urbina underscore design. Quick reminder that you can also, as you're listening to the podcast, you can now see it on video. You can watch it on video, not just on YouTube, but on Spotify video podcasts. Shout out to the amazing editing skills of our editor, Carlos Bolivar, and to my producer and wife, Narceli Guevara. All right, my friends, let's get it started. He's an incredible entrepreneur, furniture designer, Alibaba ambassador. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy this episode with Bernardo Urbina like I know you will. In three, two, one, go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Stefan Dyer podcast. I have here... The unbreakable, the unmistakable, the highly capable, my childhood friend, Bernardo Urbina. How are you, buddy? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. How are you, man? Thanks for having me. Thank you, man. I'm, I'm very good. I, well, it's really cold here in Toronto. How are things in Saolito? Is it cold, warm? It's warm and windy. What's yeah. warm and windy? Like maybe 18 degrees Celsius? No, like... 23 24 oh that's perfect yeah that's pretty good and it's good wind to go kite surfing we have the lake here five minutes away so whenever we get a chance we just we just go oh my god salito has a special place in my heart because <laughs> because like what year was this 2017 i think december around yeah. that yeah I well, we've been childhood friends for the longest time because we went to the same school as kids, and you you let us stay at your place in Saalito for a couple of days in December 2017, I think. And I went with my with my girlfriend now wife Narsen. We stayed, but we didn't know that you had two dogs outside of your house that didn't recognize us, and one of them was like a. <laughs> It's like a pit bull. <laughs> and then what the craziest thing is we forgot the keys inside. We got locked out of the house. This was like a Tuesday at like 1 a.m. that we got to your place. And you guys were in Amsterdam at the time, I think. And we didn't know what to do. So we had to we had to like rob the place. <laughs> we had 
to like break a window as the pit bull stared at us and there was nobody around like the pit bull could have killed us and and nobody would have known for days maybe <laughs> luckily the pit bull was uh, didn't hurt us we managed to to be there we drove to Rio Celeste we drove to to Arenal we drove to lots of places and it would turned out to be a really good vacation but oh and then we were inside after like robbing the place to be able to go inside i mean we didn't like break a window it was like a small celosia you know like but uh as we're we're in we were so nervous because it was like two hours for us to be able to break in and we were having a beer and then we just out of nowhere like the loudest sound the loudest like we're like ah, <laughs> what's going on <laughs> me and my Marisa and I jumped and we were screaming and we didn't know what it was and it was like these these geckos you know yeah. Yeah. what are they called in Spanish geckos yeah geckos and yeah. but you'd think that yeah how can a gecko like a small little gecko lizard have a loud sound dude it's la- so loud <laughs> and my wife was so scared that we we had to sleep the, for like the three days with the lights on. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was so scared of the geckos. I mean, I I jumped as well with the first time, but well, here we are, my friend. Thank you for letting us stay at your place. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> and then a, a a year or two later, you came to Toronto. Yeah. With your girlfriend and you you stayed with us uh, as well and uh, we actually went to Toronto Island. So, uh happy that our 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 friendship has has uh, we've we've been able to maintain the friendship although I moved out of Costa Rica when I was 10. So basically right. we have a but we've been able to maintain it and for the longest time I've been a big fan of of what you do. Everybody, I don't know I don't care what you're doing, but you have to go into Bernardo's Instagram <laughs> and check out these masterpieces that he does with wood. But we're going to go get into it. So Bernardo Urbina is a designer who fell in love with upcycling waste material into thoughtful design products. So if I had to put it into words, like if I explain it to a 10-year-old, you get wood that is... Could be trash, but you grab it, and I think that's what upcycling means. You grab it, and then you design it. It's not like you're cutting trees for no reason and then making the the furniture. You grab pieces of wood that would otherwise go to, I don't know, the garbage, and you turn them into incredible furniture. Is that what upcycling means? Yeah. I mean, it's um, upcycling. You can upcycle anything. We focused on wood material, um, but it's finding overlooked wood that the common wood industry wouldn't use because of its shape and form. So the wood industry basically likes wood planks that are straight, that are solid, that have no no holes in it. So we prefer the organic shape wood that won't be good for construction because the wood industry is mainly construction and furniture is just like a small part of it. Um, So we grab that overlooked material and we design around the piece to create use for it. Yeah, man. 
it's impressive because for our wedding, you gave us some really beautiful chairs that we still have, obviously. And in on your Instagram, you have you sometimes have these reels, these videos, or like the chronology the chronological order in which you get the, 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 the wood and then you turn them into beautiful pieces. So I know that I just said it already, but go into in, on Instagram, Bernardo underscore Urbina underscore design, or you can just click on the, on the show notes on the Instagram of Bernardo. So you can kind of appreciate as we're talking about this before we go into the specifics of the upcycling and the design, I want to know where this passion started because the majority of our friends or in Latin America, in fact, the majority of my friends here, they go into like, I don't know, law, engineering, uh, banking that I did for many years, marketing, uh, sometimes fitness. How did you discover this passion and what did you study in university that led to this? That's a broad question. Uh, I'll yeah. see how, how I can answer it. Let's see, when I was, I don't know, I remember when I was a kid, I would like to take things apart just to see how things were yeah. built and working. So I remember once I took a old TV with one of those that had like this big hood on the back and yeah. I just like <laughs> took it apart. Um, and my idea was to just place it into the, cut a hole in the wall and place it into the into the wall so I wouldn't see that big back on the <laughs> and have like a flat screen, right? Yeah. <laughs> a flat screen, but with like a like a refrigerator microwave of a TV right. pretty much. Um and then putting all that back together was always a mess. Sometimes it came really well and sometimes it didn't. Um but that curiosity of how things work, I think led me to to study first product design in Costa Rica. I uh, was studying there for a year before I transferred to Pratt Institute in New York to finish with industrial design. While I was in New York, I was on a, or I learned that there is many branches of industrial design. You can yeah. do um, car design, shoe design. You can do... Uh, furniture design, which is the one that I focused on. So there's a lot of studio design classes that you can take for you to get your uh, specialty in. So I did furniture. Um, I was always into wood, having like Costa Rica, many wood species here. Um, it just made sense for me. And I just felt comfortable working with wood. And that's slowly how we, how I went into furniture. I know that you ended up living in Italy for a while as well. Was that related to design? Yeah. Um, after my graduation, I worked in New York for a bit. Yeah. I ended up, what I thought was my dream job was designing furniture in Soho when I was a student. Yeah. But it wasn't. I <laughs> why why was it why wasn't it the dream job? I don't know. It was I thought it was it was, but when I was actually there, it just it wasn't. I wasn't fulfilled. <laughs> so I ended up quitting 
and moving to Italy to pursue a master's degree in industrial design for architecture. Nice. And how, how was, how was living in Europe? Was it really, really cool? Was it, was Italy uh, what, what you thought it was going to be? Europe in general was amazing. It was an incredible experience. Living in Milan was a great opportunity because it's very central in Europe. So you can get um, flight tickets to basically any country fairly inexpensive and getting there quite fast. So it was, I got to see a lot of Europe. And did you end up learning a little bit of Italian or no? Yeah, I took actually Italian classes at Pratt Institute. Um, oh, wow. I took a year of Italian um, did everybody call you Bernardi or no? <laughs> they called you Bernardo. <laughs> <laughs> you just call me Bernardo. <laughs> okay. Okay. And this is like the main part that I enjoy about your story. Cause when I went to Costa Rica to do the, the comedy festival, we spent like a whole night talking about the Philippines. I remember like just laughing so hard about all the stories that you had in the Philippines. But more than that, I was super interested because First of all, why the Philippines? And it turns out that you managed to be there. I don't know if during, but definitely for the aftermath of a typhoon, which then led you to do something incredible for the community. So can you elaborate a, a bit of, of your journey in, in the Philippines and why you got there in the first place? Yeah. So when I was living in Italy, I met some Filipinos through the master's program. And they, I told them what I did, my background, that I was in furniture. And they mentioned that uh, Philippines is really big in furniture production, which I had no idea back then. We're talking like an island, Cebu City, just the whole economy revolves around uh, building furniture. Wow. And that's because English is a second official language in Philippines. So a lot of U.S. companies work with Philippines because of the language. There's no language barrier. Even the taxi driver speaks English. Mm. Um, so it's I like applied, a Filipino English, though, Yeah, right? Filipino English, but English nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. They won't answer you in Tagalog. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so I applied for some furniture job positions there and I got a offer to be a senior designer uh, for a company in Philippines. So decided to take it and see where it went. What, what year was, was this that? that you initially went there? What was that? What year did you initially arrive in the Philippines? 2013. Yes. And, and was that during Typhoon Haiyan? Is that how you pronounce it? Typhoon Haiyan? Was it was during or right after? Right before. Whoa. Right before. We, we moved to Philippines. I say we because I met Aurelia, my current fiance, on the way to the Philippines in Greece. And she moved there with me. And we arrived, I arrived in August and she arrived in September. Typhoon Haiyan hit late October or November of that year of 2013. And you were there like, yeah, like we were. They, or were there parts of the Philippines that didn't get hit? Were you in a part that got massively hit? What was that experience like? 
So Cebu is surrounded by islands. Philippines is 7,000 islands. Wow. And it hit first Tacloban, which is further out to the open sea. And then it hit Cebu, but just the northern part. Luckily, where Cebu City is, it didn't get hit as strong. It felt that it was like a big um, rainfall, like a Costa Rican rainfall for like two days or three days. There wasn't any electricity, a um, little bit of running water, so that we, we were basically um, without communication with the rest of the world for for two days. Wow. Later, when everything dried up, we saw where Tacloban is, and it was just basically destroyed. There were like shipping ships right on rice fields, um, right what? on towns. There were like seven shipping ships throughout, scattered throughout the Tacloban Island. And it was crazy. People like it was just insane how strong that storm was. And at that point, you were doing. Uh, furniture production. You were working in, in the furniture. And when this happened, how did your game plan change in terms of the, your career aspirations or, or what you were currently doing there in terms of furniture and design? So my job was for six months, my job offer. Um, mm -hmm. This was already maybe month number four in December. And seeing how all the NGOs came to help Philippines, the Philippine government wasn't doing anything to help their, their people. Um, a lot of the help came from private companies inside Philippines. Wow. I found an opportunity where I could keep doing what I love <clears throat> and help the people of Tacloban at the same time, which was buying debris and scrap wood from the survivors, document the whole process, transform it into one of a kind pieces of furniture. We did a gallery event to sell that furniture. And then once the furniture was sold, we gave 10% of the proceeds to the affected Filipino we bought the debris from. Um, wow. And that was like our first, um, when we decided not to renew our contract with this company, that's like the first collection we, we made. Um, just to see how we can help some few people doing things that I love. And we never expected to have such a positive impact in the Filipino society that we got invited by the government to, to the furniture show in Manila. Um, and we ended up in the first night of our first gallery, we sold 90% of the, of the items. Wow. And two months from that night, we had an invitation for the furniture show. So we had to run back to Tacloban and do another collection to oh, wow. have items to show for the furniture show because we had sold out. And um, how, how many days away was the furniture show from the time that you got the call? 
Like a month and a half. And that was like not enough time. Or, or, like you had to scramble to get all yeah. these things done, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was uh fast. What kind of products? Production. What kind of products was it like the designs that you were doing? Was it chairs? Was it nightstands? Was it uh, dinner tables? What kind it, of things did you do in your first collection? It was uh coffee tables, console tables, lights, mirrors, um, cutting boards and coasters yeah it's amazing and how many pieces were there in the first collection like 40 80 no no this is more um it's all custom made so it it takes more time to produce them it were like 15 to 20 pieces per collection that's amazing yeah and and after you got that call how did you were like, whoa, this is, I, I wasn't expecting this. Were you like, I'm going to stay here for another couple of years and see where this takes us so that I can contribute to the community. And I love the Philippines or what was the next step? Yeah, we were happy with the Philippines. Life there is, is simple. Um, it's comfortable. You're basically in paradise because of 7,000 islands. And we were seeing such a positive response from the Filipino community and the rest of the world. We, we just kept going and doing more collections as we were selling them. Uh, we were getting featured every month throughout the three years on two different news media. Um, eventually we got picked up by the New York Times and that gave us a big boost um that that we it helped us display our furniture in the um, italian furniture show in milan and you ended up going you had to bring all the furniture to milan and and what was the reception like there what did people say bernardi this is beautiful (laughs) (laughs) this is like 2014-15 yeah 2000 yeah, around there, 2014-15. Um, can't remember exactly what year, but it was April of one of those. And the people really liked the furniture, the designs. They weren't... For them, the typhoon was too far away. Like, they felt... They, were, they had no connection to the typhoon. Mm-hmm. They liked the idea of the upcycling, but... In Asia, people that were affected by the typhoon, that lived to the typhoon, had a closer connection and had a closer sentimental value to the items Mm -hmm. that they were purchasing. Each item carried a picture of the survivor holding the debris before the transformation. And the name of the piece, it was the name of the person we bought the debris from. So it would be like Grace coffee table, for example. And then you'll have Grace holding the debris in a picture that came with the item. That's incredible. I, I have a quick question about wood because I always think about this and I never know how how these things are made. So if, if my apartment door is wooden and it's probably eight feet tall by three or four feet, I guess, wide. 
is that wood, like the entire shape of the door, is that cut perfectly from inside a tree that is bigger? Or do they, dis, like, do they, um, ¿cómo se dice? Como que cuando... Laminated. They, they, como que rajan el árbol, they just go like... And then they build the door perfectly by that shape. So there's there's two types of doors. You can do solid wood, solid hardwood doors. That is what yeah. we do. Um, and those you buy, for example, six by two inch boards, solid boards that you plane, and then you get a perfect straight um, plank, board plank of two by yeah. six, and you use that to make like the frame around the door. And then you put wood panels in the center. Um, so okay. it is a solid piece of wood in that design. If it's particle board or there's like cheaper doors that you can go to Home Depot and prefab uh, oh, doors, then those are way lighter. Those you use like compressed wood. Yeah. Okay. And that's that was my question. So there's so you like, can compress. You could. You could. How do? You, what's the verb to say? Like you, you, like you know when you put uh, carrots through the carrot thing. Yeah, the grinder. The grinder. You can so you can grind wood and then you can put it in the shape that you want, but it's obviously lower, maybe lower quality. Yeah, it's a particle board. There's also MDF, which stands for medium density fiber. Okay. And they grab fibers of different wood and they compress them together, but it looks like carton basically. Oh, and I get it. all these, all these woods or types, they're not wood, all these types of material, most of them, if you put a little bit of water, they just inflate and they're not oh, waterproof. They are, it. now they have like for kitchens, for example, there are particle boards that are waterproof but they're much more expensive. I get it. When, uh, thank you for answering my uh, existential question on <laughs> just looking at my no, door no, for six hours it, every day. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, then I feel bad because I'm like, I, I don't want my, I feel like I'm killing trees for no particular reason. And this has to be like a big, big tree for us to be able to perfectly get that door. Like this is a big, like doors are big, you know, but yeah, well, back, I mean, there is, Ways that you can sustainably harvest trees, right? Costa Rica is one of the few countries in the world that has reforest in the past 25 years has grown more trees than it has cut down. Really? Yeah. Like in the 70s or 60s, Costa Rica was 75% of the land was forests. By 1980... 1985, it went down to 25% of the land. What? So we cut down 50% of the forest in Costa Rica. And it was a mess. Like it was unregulated. People were just cutting how they wanted, wherever. And in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken, regulation came into place. And the president back then um, made the national parks. Wow. Like law. So he established certain areas as national Protected. parks. Yeah. 
and they were they would become protected forever now you can't build anything um in in them and that helped the reforestation yeah. he also gave incentives for big companies instead of paying income tax um at the end of the year if they bought land and we and did reforestation they would get um subsidized that income tax so it was wow it was like a big incentives for them they would get tax breaks um yeah i feel like costa rica is always at the forefront of many of these things and there's a big sense of pride in terms of protecting the land the national parks mm -hmm. protecting tourism protecting the animals and i and i really like that i mean obviously i haven't lived there since i'm 10 and but i was born there i go back there a lot and i always feel proud of of that when when you look back to your philippines experience was there like a story or you talking to somebody and they after you gave them the proceeds or when you bought the wood or when they saw the final collection any like testimonials that really hit hard that, that you really cherish any stories that you can share well when we purchase the wood we we never told them what it was for um we asked them if we saw like a debris just thrown out there we asked them who it was and if we could purchase it some people were like here just take it for free and we're like no no we want to give you money for it like it's it's yours we want to like make like for you to benefit out of this transaction also um yeah. we one reason we didn't tell them what we were doing one we didn't want to create false expectations because we didn't know at that moment what or if we were going to use that debris yeah. for and two we don't want them to start tearing down their houses oh and, yeah and offering things that they're actually using yeah, um, that's big. Oh, you're buying this? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Very smart. Very smart to do that. So we just went around browsing, looking. We hired a local driver at the um, at the island and he'll like take us around and we'll just like pack like this open pickup van with like random things, like just anything we found interesting. We were walking around the island with a camera, documented everything. Um, and there's like videos of how devastated the island was. And you could see like how weird, like they were always happy. Like they were so happy to see us like just really joking around in the middle of like just destruction. Um, and they were just like super nice people, super friendly. We've never met any other culture or country that is so foreigner friendly and they will just come up and talk to you in the three years that I was there, I never felt um, insecure and walking through the slums or whatever. It was, That's it was like incredible. an incredible experience for sure. Were there any things that, that you were like, huh, this is a little weird uh, for a country. <laughs> uh, anything, anything quirky about the Philippines, any, anything weird, anything uh, that, you and Aurelia were like, huh, this is a, 
this is a little weird of how things work here or how we're being treated. So, um, I mean, there are tons of stories, but one of the things that for me, at least that caught my attention up to today, Philippines is, has been invaded by the Spaniards and then the U.S. took over. So it's always like been um, influenced by other cultures heavily, right? The Spaniards, when they first arrived, they were really indigenous people in the islands. Um, yeah. And a lot of Filipino words are Spanish words. Oh, yeah. And last because, names also very Spanish last names. Right. And but the words are Spanish. All the words that are Spanish in Philippines are objects or things that they didn't have before the Spaniards arrived. Wow! So you have esquina, like they don't, they didn't have corners. <laughs> they had the concept of corners didn't exist to them. They had no <laughs> word for corners, so they call it esquina. Then escuela, there was no schools for kids. Really? Like established institute known as a school. They didn't have one. Um, but one thing that amazes me, they did have a way to count. So they count their shirts. They count objects in their own language. But anything that is currency, they call they count it in Spanish. What? So just currency. If you're just talking about currency, you'll say like 100 pesos, 1,500, 250,75. But if you're counting shoes and you're not <laughs> buying them, you count it in Tagalog. Like it's not in Spanish. So for really? me, that was like mind blowing that they have two separate uh, number systems. One for payments and one just for everyday counting. <laughs> One thing I've never understood, and I think I asked you this years ago when we, when we were having this talk, is I have heard Filipinos say, because in fact, where I live here in Toronto, there's a lot of Filipinos in the Bathurst and Shepherd area, Bathurst and Wilson area. There's a lot of Filipinos. And I've, I've heard them say the Philippines, not the Philippines, but the Philippines. The Philippines. And I never go. I never, are we saying it wrong? Because the name is with an F or a PH. But yeah. why are they saying Philippines instead of Philippines? Because they don't pronounce the F. They say five. They say, they say five instead of five. Yes. But why don't they, I mean. It, they don't, they don't, it's just in their culture. They don't pronounce the, the F sound. They, they put it as a P sound. But in, do they not have an F in the alphabet? In their alphabet, or it's just a thing where I think they do have an. I think it's no, they do have an F because they write it five, but they pronounce five. <laughs> it's a, it's a special culture. I love yeah. it. There's a, a it, lot of things. And what about the standard of li- the the cost of living? I, I mean, how much would it cost to rent an apartment? How much would it cost maybe like food for a month? Uh, transportation. So, I mean, this is a third world country and it's the social gap is huge. Yeah. It's just massive. So the middle class 
is almost none. Uh, thankfully, it's growing. Like the social gap, I felt when I left, it was it was growing. The middle class um, was getting stronger. But you have a hundred billion people living in Philippines. A hundred million. Yeah, a hundred wow. million people living in Philippines is tons. Just in the city that I was in, or in the island, was four million back then. So that was like the size of Costa Rica. That is in put things in perspective. And is is that island smaller than Costa Rica? By size, yes. How much? How much? Like in terms of size, how much bigger is the Philippines than Costa Rica? Well, the Philippines is spread out in seven thousand islands. Okay. So the so land we, area. We can't really is, do the math. Right. <laughs> so, so the math isn't that easy. <laughs> so, but but it's very congested, right? And there is a big lower class and a big and a small upper class. And for rent, it's really hard because you can either find huge mansions that are expensive, which yeah. pools and five bedrooms and whatnot. And then you, or you go to the other extreme and it's like this shack with no door and a curtain. And it's wow. like, how do you get like the in-between? And luckily we were able to find um, a townhouse. It had, I think it was the biggest house I've lived in up until then, like that I've rented. It was three bedroom and two and a half bad bathroom, two floor. And it was wow. $300. What? $300. Um, and then incredible. we used, so Aurelia took one of the bedrooms and converted it into a walk-in closet. <laughs> because why not? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so we ended up having a, two additional bedrooms and two bathrooms available which we placed on Airbnb and we wow. just got and you like paid a, for the rent. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, just like a steady income there. Passive, passive income. income. Yeah. Nice. And, and after the Philippines experience, you go back to Costa Rica and how do you go from, okay, I did this in New York. I did this in Italy. I was doing learning. I was doing learning. I go through to the Philippines where I endured this inc- insane, extraordinary natural disaster that I was man- I was able to at least turn some negative into positive. You go, you are, you appear in the, in the headlines, in the news regularly, you get featured in the New York times. And then you come back to the motherland where yes, there's a lot of obviously wood, but, do you know other people that were doing what you're doing or did you have to start this business from scratch where you're probably the only one that's doing this? What was your experience like coming back to Costa Rica and starting Bernardo Urbina design locally now? So it was interesting because it wasn't, there was like a transition. Yeah. Um, as we were deciding to relocate back to Costa Rica, we got contacted by an interior designer 
in Costa Rica who thought I was based in Costa Rica asking for furniture. So we actually sold and built our first piece while being in Philippines. And when we arrived to Costa Rica, we arrived to install it. Wow. So and they still she did she still didn't know that you were you weren't living in Costa Rica or by that no, time. She did. No, no, when she contacted him, I was like, hey, listen, I'm let's say it was April. I'm not in Costa Rica right now, but I'll we are relocating back to Costa Rica by August. I'll be there. We can design this. Like I don't need to be in Costa Rica to design this or to make it. Um we can start coordinating everything. I can send you drafts for the base and you can start making it based on the technical drawings that I sent and you'll just do the metal base and I'll take care of the wooden part um, so that when I come, we can just install the wood part with your base. Um, and it was like this big conference table made out of railway tiles that we salvage from Incofer. Um, nice. And it turned out amazing. It has a glass in between the railway tiles. So the transition was quite smooth. We didn't have to come here and do marketing and try to get projects, but we arrived with a project. And, and that and just led does... on to more projects. Oh, man, that's, that's good. Because when you're an entrepreneur and you, a lot of people who are entrepreneurs they can be incredible at what they do, at the technical skills that you know. But sometimes in order to sell, it requires another skill set. In order to market it, it requires another skill set. Like probably a lot of entrepreneurs feel more comfortable doing their craft, the technical skill, than posting it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's another skill, like marketing and promoting and, and selling is another skill. What Where did you feel that, where do you feel that you're, you're most comfortable and where did where do you feel that you had to kick it up a notch to make sure that the business continued to thrive as you moved into Costa Rica? Finding the right woodworker because I can't do everything, right? I have to outsource. Exactly. And for me, outsourcing sales and marketing, it's like giving... I'm the face of my brand. It's like the identity, basically. Yeah. Um, So outsourcing, marketing, and sales, it's like giving my identity to someone else. And I I don't feel comfortable someone else handling that aspect. So I had to find someone that would be really good in woodworking so that I can focus on the design and the sell and marketing of the whole furniture and so, the what when it comes to the process of of designing because i'm not a designer <laughs> um you do it on computer first or is also always in your head when you sent the industrial design uh, the interior designer uh, the person who contacted you initially and mm-hmm. you sent them is it a drawing is it a drawing on computer are you designing on architecture software? So we, what's the process before the masterpiece? Depends on 
on the project. There are certain things that will be form based. That means like I have an object already established because there's a debris that's existing that I can't reproduce. So we yeah. design around that object. Um, or we, if it's a table, then there is certain parameters that we that we have to follow, right? We can't just make okay. a weird shaped table because it won't make sense to sit around. But we, the creative part starts always on paper. And we start like sketching um, different ideas, maybe like 20 to 30 different ideas and just try to even stupid things that would never end up happening just to get the creative flow going. After that, we look at everything like from a step back and see like similarities between each other and try to put them in groups of these designs look similar. And we have maybe three different groups, sets of 10 of each one and see what we like about each one and how we can combine the things that we like into a specific design that we eventually turn into a computer because putting in the computer takes longer than just doing a sketch. Um, We use Fusion 360, which is a CAD program um, that creates technical drawings that will eventually be sent to the client or to interior designer for them to actually analyze and see sizes and scales. And we can put texture in the, in the program. So we take pictures of the wood and we can put the actual wood in the render. Um, We have a 3d camera, a 3d scanner. So we can scan the debris or if it has like a weird shape, a root or something and put that in the program and we can cut it in the program before we even cut it in real life just for demonstration purposes. That's incredible. I had no idea. It's just like stand-up comedy. (laughs) (laughs) No, but really, in many ways, when you're talking about just creating stuff that'll never make it, it's the same. You write jokes that'll never make it on stage, but you have to create these jokes. You have to write it. You have to go through the through the things that will never make it to the stage so that you get to the ones that make it to the stage. And you just get into this flow state of creating, 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 but it's very hard to be creative if all you're doing is editing yourself and like, no, no, this is dumb. No, no, this is dumb. No, no, this is dumb. You have to be willing to fail to create the good parts. And then when it comes to, for example, creating a collection, in my case, a stand-up comedy special, I'll have jokes that are about uh, Daddy Yankee, and then I'll have a joke about dogs, and then I'll have a joke about kids, and then I'll have a joke about music, and then I'll have a joke about forests, and then I'll have a joke about avocados, and then I'll have a joke about uh, Don Omar or Bad Bunny. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, oh, here's a pattern. I have Daddy Yankee, I have music, and I have Bad Bunny. So now I'll put that in like a semi-collection where I'll throw those jokes together on the topic of music or reggaeton. Right. And, and then I'm grouping. I actually had my, my comedy special um, page here that I was looking at yesterday for no apparent reason. So I'll just show you because it may be really cool for their, our listeners who are actually seeing this 
on Spotify because now Spotify has videos. So look at the look at the page. So these little these jokes, the sections mm-hmm. are trabajo, reggaeton, inglés, mujeres, me casé, <laughs> so marriage, work, dating, reggaeton, Venezuelans, intro. So all the, and learning English. Right. So under each of these sections, Venezolanos, I got married, dating, work, reggaeton, and English. Those are the big topics. But under those, I have six or seven jokes. But because I group them, it's easier to show the collection. You know, it's easier mm-hmm. to, to show people. But behind this hour of comedy, there's like, tens or hundreds of hours of 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 failed jokes you know <laughs> of like but you can't get to the good ones unless you you write the bad ones you know so it's i mean i'm not putting my jokes into a 3d model but it's very similar to the creation process <laughs> i know that you you tried to you uh you flirted with the idea of doing amazon for your products what was uh what was the learning and the experience of putting your products on amazon Wow. That was, that was intense. We were (laughs) living in, in the Philippines and right now, like Amazon, it's, it's huge. Back then it was starting to grow like the private labeling. Um, so we started it. There was a podcast that we were following to learn how to put products on Amazon because it's yeah. a whole master's degree to do it. And the idea came because we thought, okay, we'll put products on Amazon and we'll have a passive income uh, while living in the Philippines. <laughs> yeah. We can just like um, have this business growing remotely in paradise, you know, living the life. Why not? <laughs> yes. Um, so me and Aurelia started listening to this guy explain on his podcast the all the steps of how to put the products on Amazon. I don't know, it was like three months. We would like travel to Cambodia and we'll be listening to, to the podcast and doing research and whatnot. And having the background of industrial design, I wanted to complement all this research that we were getting and all this information and adding value with the education that I've gotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, the podcast, what it was saying is just buy a product in China, put a label on it, and sell it on Amazon. Okay, well, that's great, but you're not adding any value to it. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to include a story around these products. Yeah. And that's how this... Um, collection of dream leaders came where we would grab we would do art projects with kids about an issue surrounding their society um explain to them what was happening then we do a art workshop and with those drawings we would grab elements that we would use as graphic designs to put into the products that will eventually be sold on Amazon and some of the proceeds would go back, not to the kids, but to the issue that was talk, 
about in the workshop so that they would see how they could also help the society around them and that they don't need to always just receive, but they can do some action to help the problem that is in their neighborhood. That's, that's amazing. Um, we were able to place our products on Amazon and we got everything. We got samples from China and things like we did computer sleeves. We got some samples and the computer didn't even. Oh like, yeah. I got, I got your computer sleeve for my Mac. Yeah, so like to get that one, we had to like get samples from different productions in China, sent to Philippines, try it on. Um, some samples were just disgusting. So how to see which uh, productions were good and which ones were bad. And then you had to make a volume order to put it on Amazon because they won't put X amount. Yeah. Um, so how many, to, how many, like a hundred, a thousand, like 2000 maybe. Okay. Yeah. And then we shipped it to Amazon. What we didn't count what on Amazon or the reason why we decided to pull out our products from Amazon was it was too expensive to keep the things on Amazon. So you have to pay for storage fees. And the storage oh. fees will depend on the size of your product. This is only if you want Amazon to fulfill the order. So you can qualify. If they do fulfill the order, then you qualify to be Amazon Prime because they already have the product with them. So it's mm -hmm. easier for them to ship. So if you want to be on Amazon Prime, you have to pay storage fees. Then... You have to pay for ads because Amazon is a huge catalog, right? If you don't pay for ads, then you will just be down in the library and no one will find you. You'll be on page 54 of <laughs> when you type computer sleeves. Yeah. So you have to pay for ads um, and for keywords, in this case, computer sleeves. So someone sees types computer sleeves, sees the product, buys it, then you start qualifying organically for that specific keyword that you're yeah. buying. So then you have the whole email campaign afterwards set up so that once you buy it, you need a review. So there's like mm. all these different costs that you start building up. So like in the first two or three years, if you just break even to buy more products and keep it in Amazon, you're basically giving the products out for free and not receiving any income. <laughs> you're doing well. What? So it's because if you stop your ads, which is the major cost, then your listing will just go down and just get hidden in the library. Yeah. So, so how did it go? For us? Yeah. As long as we were paying for ads, we were selling the products. But sometimes we paid more ads than the income we received. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make any sense. It's like, what business is this? Like, I'm paying ads to Amazon and then the client is paying Amazon. It's like, really? I have to pay Amazon for the client to see my product for them to pay Amazon again? And I'm like, no, dude, this doesn't make any sense. So you stopped it. And yeah. And, and what, how it. many years? How many years were you doing this? I think it took us like two and a half years, from start to finish. 
Wow. <laughs> like the learning curve. But um, I mean, we, I didn't have the time to dedicate to grow the business. And we learned a lot on dealing with China suppliers. Yeah, so it's definitely, um, I don't regret it at all because I can confidently go on Alibaba and order stuff and talk to them. And we just ordered, for example, my family has a dairy farm and they, we needed mini cargador. I think it's like a forklift, but it's not a forklift. Um, and we went on Alibaba and we found like a company. We did some research and instead of paying five times what it costs in the States, we bought it on in China and they shipped it over. And wow. the same for machineries, like for the yogurt, we just purchased a yogurt filler and it, they're flying it. It arrives next month. So yeah. when, when I remember when I went to your house with, with my wife, Aurelia had a, a yogurt production and it was delicious. How has Tisu Farm uh, evolved and what are you guys doing these days when it comes to yogurt? So, yeah, we are trying to push the yogurt as much as we can. And now that, well, last year we were able to place it in stores. So we are wow. doing, um, we're delivering it to stores in Nosada and we offer home delivery every Sunday in San Jose before it was every other week. And we've, and this is Greek yogurt, Greek yogurt. Yeah. Is it like plain or vanilla or no, just plain, plain Greek yogurt. And how did, how would people uh, order it? We have, I've been developing a website at first. It was very manual through WhatsApp and I would have to do an Excel (laughs) sheet and like just take every, it'll take me, I don't know, four hours to create the route and we would deliver it. We would deliver the product. We'll take it on Friday to San Jose, deliver it on Sunday for eight hours and then drive back to the farm because we had to work on Monday. So it was, and that was like every other week for like a year and a half Um, (laughs) until we grew to a certain point where we were able to afford a delivery driver. So we would send the product Which you got on Alibaba because you were <laughs> able to. <laughs> so now you, you got more, more people, more production. Now, yeah. what do you use? What do you use to do the route now and the deliveries and scheduling the orders? What do you use? Did you create the website yourself? Yeah, we've been developing a website um, where people can order online. And they, it's like ordering an Uber. So there's a map and a pinpoint and you just press locate me. The back end of the website grabs the coordinates that the map has. And when all the orders are in, we do renderize route and it pinpoints a route that goes to each coordinate. That's incredible. And the di- the driver has a dashboard, like a uh, access to it, and he goes through the route using our system. Dude, what when you when you discovered this, it was like discovering water in the middle of the desert, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's programs that do that, and you can pay for it, but they're super expensive. 
So it's so like, you bought it on Alibaba. <laughs> <laughs> For five times cheaper because you're really good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's amazing, man. Tisu Farm making moves. Aurelia yeah. and Bernardo. And what else do you, what else do you, so this is produced in the farm in Sabalito, in, Sabalito is in, in Alajuela, right? Sabalito is in Guanacaste. In Guanacaste, oh, Sabalito is in Guanacaste, mm-hmm. yeah. And you got the, the people driving the yogurt, but where is it done? I know that your family has a farm near Sabalito. Yeah, we have, uh, so we built an infrastructure completely separate to get the health permit. At first, we started doing it in the kitchen. And, dude, the guest room turned into a refrigerator room. So when like breaking sleep, bad. <laughs> when I went to sleep, I would just hear. <laughs> and then at 7 a.m., Aurelia's employee would walk in, regardless if you're showered at breakfast, if you're still sleeping, who gives a shit? She would just walk in and to start because production started, you know, like it's day's work. Um, And to get the health permit, you can't produce things in home, like at your house, obviously, because of cross contamination (laughs) and other details. So we build um, a small um, processing plant for dairy. That's where we do the yogurt now. And we're actually about to place fat-free yogurt in the grocery stores. Wow. It's it's exciting times. And the website has allowed us to introduce more products. So she now has ricotta cheese. She does uh, labne, which is another type of cheese. Um, Gnocchis from ricotta and granola. So the, w- wow. with the website, we just launch a product and our whole audience reaches it. And what's the website? It's tisufarm.com. Oh, I love it. And the one of my favorite things that you ha- that you guys have done in the, in the recent past was the Santos Schoolie Airbnb. And <laughs> can you give some context about this? So it's like a it's like a paradise bus airbnb apartment in the middle of nowhere with the best view ever can you explain it better than i just did (laughs) and where did the idea come from so when we used to travel a lot right in asia we traveled tons and when we relocated back slowly we started to put roots in costa rica i built my wood shop i already started her dairy processing plant and our traveling started to, our work started to limiting our traveling. Yeah. And we've always wanted to drive down South America for six months. I've always wanted to go from Chile to Alaska and do the whole trip. Yeah. uh, Driving. And it was just impossible because of work and the circumstances. So a law recently passed that buses over 20 years of circulation had to be put out of service and tons of old buses were in junkyards. Wow. So instead of doing that whole trip, we, we thought, why not just 
still do the transformation of the bus because for us it's fun like ever since i was a kid i would like to put things apart and build things so why not bring that bus to us and put it in the farm so we purchased the bus we placed it and the next day the president closed the borders because of covid <laughs> so <laughs> i have this old bus straight from the junkyard sitting in front of my office painted yellow and rust and i'm like oh my god what did i do like now i have like this <laughs> shitty bus like right in front how much is a bus how much is a bus to buy on a junkyard like three hundred dollars um a little bit more like 500 but yeah fairly inexpensive the bus is the the cheapest part of the whole construction nice um and we were so uncertain because covid just hit costa rica closed the borders i have this yellow old bus <laughs> in my eye view when i'm working you know now yeah. i used to have like this amazing view and now i have a bus there and i'm like oh my god what did i do I left it there for two months because we were uncertain if tourists were coming back, if it was going to rent, are we going to put our savings into this and transform yeah. it? And then what? What if it doesn't rent? Like we're in the middle of nowhere. Like our nearest grocery store is 20 minutes away. We yeah. have restaurants or bars in the area. Like we're very <laughs> remote. Yeah. Two months later, we talk and we're like, fuck it. Let's just let's just do it and see what happens. So we started construction. We had six months until we finish it. And the last two, I decided to close the shop and just dedicate it to the bus. Wow. So that we can list it in January of the following year. On Airbnb. And on Airbnb. Yes. And luckily, is it has had such positive response that we thought we were going to have a space of our own to just chill, you know, and it's not rented out. And we had to book a night last year because we've only <laughs> we've only slept there once. That's insane. Alejandro has stayed there a, a couple of times, right? Like yeah, a night? he came here um, and stayed for a night or two. Um, yeah. and it's been like a, a great success that we are thinking of building an additional two more this year. Wow. We're going to, we're going to include links to the Airbnb just because people need to see it. And you, you had a Instagram video too. When I promote the episode, I'm going to be putting it everywhere. Cause it's, a, it's, it's like a, you know, one of those TikTok videos where you see like something that is horrible and then it's turned into something uh, beautiful. It really, it's like an emotional video because you see the process, you see the final thing. You just want to go there, chill, read a book and have some coffee, you know, it's like perfect. And how many, uh, can you describe how, how big it is? Like it just, it has a place to shower, a, a bedroom and uh, a couple seats. How big is yeah, it? It's so it's 35 square meters. It has a queen size bed and a private, like a one bedroom apartment. Um, it has a stove, full kitchen, basically, and an amazing bathroom with the view. 
Yeah. It has a big deck, two glass doors that open into the deck. So you end up having like a large living room outdoor area. It has a pull-out couch that turns into another queen-size bed. So four people can sleep or a family, a couple and a kid or two. It has a workstation. Internet is very stable. And you have cows that come visit you in the morning. <laughs> of the dairy a, farm. Dude, you're going to turn Sabalito into like a touristic destination, <laughs> like a tourist destination, because you got you got the bus, the, the Santa Schooly. Then you got the, the dairy tour. You can go eat yogurt. You can see the cows. Then you can go see the wood. Uh, how do you call it? the wood studio? The wood, uh, the wood shop. The wood shop. And like, what else are you going to build? You're going to build like a, a canopy place. <laughs> what else do you have in mind? <laughs> no, dude, it was, it was amazing to see how the bus actually had such a positive response because people land in San Jose. Yeah. And their first night is in the bus. Really? They drive to the bus when they land. Like we thought it was going to be a step over when people are driving from La Fortuna to Rio Celeste or to Monteverde because we're right in the center and like, okay, well, why not? Like that road has a lot of traffic. So they'll just sleep over, spend the night and continue their traveling. But we never thought that the bus was going to turn into an attraction itself. Yeah. So people are landing and just coming to the bus or figure we've had guests that had to organize their whole Costa Rican trip based on the availability of the bus <laughs> because they really want to come to the bus. What, what's the longest that, that somebody has stayed on the bus? Seven days. That's incredible. You know what I would love to do? Like this is a this is a, the type of thing that creatives. I would love to just stay there for like seven days and just write and create because this is one of those places where you can only do what you're doing at the moment because it's just the bus. Obviously, you have internet, but it's in like in a remote place with a beautiful view. Cows come visit. And it forces you to be present and just look at the view, reflect, look back, acknowledge, be grateful, have a cup of coffee, read a book. So I would just like to go there and do nothing. And I think maybe that's what a lot of people do. You know, where, where do people come from? Like Europe, Canada, Argentina? Everywhere. Everywhere. Um, we've had from the States, Europe, we've had locals come in also. So it's, I mean, it, It's just everywhere. Mainly, I would say Americans would be like 60% and Europeans, 30%, 10% locals. And this could be really good because you got one, you got the yogurt, you got the wood, and slowly you're starting to delegate to the point that you could have three or four and somebody doing the yogurt you leave a couple projects for the wood shop in process. And then you guys can go from Argentina to Canada in a motorcycle, you know, and, and now you have your empire. And this, <laughs> But what I like is that everything has its own little meaning and everything has its organic component. You're adding value to people. You're adding value to society. And 
what I love the most, which I like to think that I do that with my projects as well, it's a reflection of Bernardo and Aurelia, you know? It's not like you're, I don't know, doing like mortgages or something that you don't even care about. Like these are, these are, these are things that, that you care about and, and that you have become really good at it, which means that you can delegate, which means that you can then start to enjoy life more because the first years as an entrepreneur, even like I, I'm five years in now and it's still a grind, you know? But the more and more you can delegate, you can continue to enjoy and have free time to do more other things that mean a lot to you. And you, the other thing that you started is Costa Rica Mill that you opened two and a half years ago, a company that exports wood. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was completely unexpected how that happened. Um, you were on Alibaba and they were like, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> It was basically, I can see how that's going to turn into a, a, <laughs> a joke, joke on your <laughs> on one of your shows. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was in Instagram and I see um, this woodworker in the States posting Doc Wright, posting a Guanacaste table on a hotel. I'm like, well, that's oh, wow. interesting. And he said, like, Costa Guanacaste, Costa Rica wood. Wow. Uh, so I comment, hey, man, how's it going? Um, are you servicing wood from Guanacaste? And he answers, yeah. So I private message him. So where are you buying it from? He's like, L.A.? And I'm like, why <laughs> are you buying it from L.A.? <laughs> and he's like, well, that's where my distributor is. I'm like, well, dude, I'm a furniture designer down here in Guanacaste, and I can help you get, like, Guanacaste if you want. And he's like, sure, like, bring me an offer or whatever. I'm like, well, how much are you paying? And he's like, X amount. I'm like, well, you're you're overpaying. Like, that's yeah. insane how much it is. Um, so I told him, like, you know what, like this, I'll, I'll find a solution for you. And I sent him a contact of the source that I was buying it from, you know, just to be friendly and they can like figure things out. Apparently the distributor was buying from that source as well. Mm. So my source that I gave him wasn't able to sell or wouldn't, it wouldn't sell to, to him. him. Right. So now I created this whole conflict because the distributor in LA is pissed because his client is going behind his back straight to the source. Cutting the middleman. And yeah. And now the distributor doesn't want to sell to him and he would. And I'm like, hey, if you don't, I'm talking to my source and I'm like, hey, if you don't sell to him, then I'm going to solve his problem because he needs wood. And yeah. they were like, no, we won't sell to him. I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. We can't go over our distributor. So I told Doc, I'm like, all right, man. I'll harvest the, I'll har harvest the logs and I'll ship you a container for half the price of what you're paying. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, six months later, I have this labs. We purchase the trees, harvest them, mill them, take them to the kiln, dry them, take pictures of them. He send it to them, and he's like, dude, I love it. I want X amount. A year. And we ship our first container. What? And we cut his biggest overhead in half. And now, <laughs> and now the middleman is like, all, oh, all the dude, other- it was such a drama. He was going to fly down here and talk to me. What? He was so pissed. I I and- took his biggest client. <laughs> and and how did that conversation end? With. With the with the with the LA person. Oh, he never he never called me in person. This was just like messages through Doc, um, but he never never showed up or anything. And I mean, in the states, Guanacaste board foot goes for eighteen dollars per board foot. Doc was paying around twelve, eleven, which was a better price, right? And I offered him at four ninety nine, so <laughs> it was more than half. It's like you, almost. you are his Alibaba. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, the business! You know what I love that the more, the more you do this entrepreneur life, and you learn, and you run into walls, and you fail you don't fail because you still retain that knowledge, which you'll then take for your next ventures and your next ventures and your next ventures. Something that is pretty much specific knowledge. Like you can't learn in a book. You have to do it. And when somebody asks you, Hey, can you explain what you do? You're just like, man, I don't know what I do. It's just like, I've done so many things that you would need, you have to be there, you know? And that's why you're, you're killing it with all these, (laughs) these ventures. (laughs) Okay. We've got to, we got to the almost the end of it. We're going to go through the fast, through the rapid fire questions. As soon as you hear, answer the first thing that comes to mind. It's pretty easy, but if you need to take a couple more seconds to think about it or to elaborate, <laughs> you can do it. Okay. Complete this statement. I lose track of time when I focus. What have you done in the past three months that makes you feel proud? Kite surf. If you could invite three people for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? Bob Marley. Yeah. Alvar Alto. Who's that? He's a Finnish designer. Okay. And... My grandfather. Love it. If you could study with any expert in the world, who would you study with? Study with any expert. Like be an intern of them, shadow yeah. them. I'm not sure. That's a hard question. Albar Alto, maybe? I uh, would look more into someone with more business knowledge. Okay, nice. What book have you recommended the most to others? Uh, 
No, I haven't. I haven't. I don't know. Okay, you can say pass. Pass. Uh, what What opportunity has come your way that you are glad you turned down? Selling Ecopoxy in Costa Rica. What's Ecopoxy? Ecopoxy is a. You know how those river tables are filled with epoxy? No. You know what river tables are? No. So there are two slabs with the organic shape of the board inwards, and then okay. you put resin in the center. So it looks like a river. Oh, I get it. Okay. So there is this um, epoxy that dries really fast and it's eco-friendly. It doesn't put fumes and it's big Canadian brand that has gone really big um, worldwide. And a friend of mine asked me to go in business with him and things didn't turn out. And I'm glad that we didn't, I <laughs> didn't pursue it. Didn't. Okay. <laughs> what lesson took you the longest to learn? Patience. What are two things that, you, what are three things that you've always wanted to do that are still on your bucket list? To go from Chile to Alaska. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That's one. Um, what else? Skydiving, which I'm completely afraid of heights. So I'm procrastinating on doing. Okay. And. To have kids. I love it. And what, didn't you bungee jump? Yeah. I, I think I've seen you. How did you do it if you're afraid of heights or is this a new thing? No, I've always been. Dude, after I bungee jumped, I came up, they pulled me <laughs> up from the bridge and I was like shaking up adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you had six months left to live, how would you spend them? With family. Okay. And the last question, everybody gets this question on the podcast. If we were to meet a year from now with a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating in Bernardo Urbina's life? More buses. <laughs> <laughs> a fleet of 25 buses in Sabalito. <laughs> I love it, man. Dude, this has been incredible when i when we go to costa rica with with my wife and liam we're gonna go visit you guys we're gonna go to salito we're gonna go stay at the bus hopefully we'll find some space or hopefully you'll have three or four by then so we'll, we'll be able to stay for for at least a couple nights hopefully there won't be any pit bulls outside of this uh house uh, this this bus so that we are not scared <laughs> there will and, be man Look, and uh let's see let's see what you got oh wow i love it what's the name this is mina oh this is mina that, that i met no there's another one she came with the bus oh wow we got her we we adopted her from a junkyard and how how does mina get along with the other one? Oh, amazing she was supposed to be a guard dog but she is a little princess and won't lay on <laughs> ceramic floor i love it I love it. And what was the name of the other dog that was there? China. China, who passed away, right? Yeah. Well, we dedicate this episode to, to China. 
And uh, big hug to you, big hug to, to Aurelia, to your mom, to your dad, to Gregorio, Sebastián, your grandma. Uh, it seems like your family is a big entrepreneurial family, right? Like they, you got all these ideas. Your grandma founded the school that we went to. Right. And, and uh, I remember going to sleepovers at your house when I was a kid playing Nintendo or Nintendo 64, um, just having the greatest time with you and, and, and Antonio and everybody. Dude, so proud of your journey. Really proud of how far you've come and where you're going to take it. So happy that you came to visit with Aurelia. You know that you have a home here in Toronto. And uh, continue, man. You're doing incredible things. I appreciate it, man. No, thank you so much for having on having us on, man. And we look forward to hosting you when you come visit Costa Rica. Will do, man. Will do. If I have any questions or if any of the listeners have any questions on Alibaba, you can call uh, Bernardo Urbina. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bernardo Urbina and Stefan Dyer on the Stefan Dyer podcast. Chao, chao. Gracias por escuchar el Stefan Dyer podcast. Arrivederci, my people.